morning, everyone. It's good to be here again. I don't know if you heard, there's this crazy story in the news on June 11th of this past year, just a couple months ago, a man who worked as a professional lobster diver in Massachusetts, Provincetown, Massachusetts, was uh, doing his job. He was diving down to the bottom of the ocean, which wasn't that deep. He wasn't hundreds of feet down. He was just a few feet down, grabbing lobsters, and he would bring them back up to the boat. Uh, all of a sudden, he feels all these striped bass and, and uh, bait fish and sea creatures like f- swimming by him as fast as possible. And he didn't know what was going on until it was too late. All of a sudden, everything goes black. Turns out he got swallowed by a whale. Um, and so he was inside for about 30 or 40 seconds, and I guess the whale decided that he didn't taste as good as uh, shrimp and bass and spit him out. And that is a great story to introduce the Jonah series. So thank you, this guy, for doing that. Today we're starting a series through the book of Jonah. It's going to be interspersed throughout the next uh, few months. And, uh, you know, this is another story about a man who was swallowed by a whale, or at least a really big fish. The thing is that, you know, a lot of people don't really know a whole lot about Jonah, other than that, you know, he got swallowed by a whale. There is so much more to this amazing short book than the fish. In fact, the great fish that swallowed him is is honestly pretty unimportant to the overall story. As a guy named uh, G. Campbell Morgan once widely said, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And I'm praying through this book that you and I will come to see the transcendent, bottomless well of grace that God has poured out for all people. His grace soaks every word in this book. It's overwhelming. And Jonah, the main character, knows this. He sees it too, but he he never quite gets it. As we'll see, Jonah loves when the grace is shown to him, when he gets the grace, but he's a little bit resentful when it's shown to others who he doesn't think deserve it. Throughout all four chapters, Jonah wrestles with really one major question that's never answered in this book by itself. He, answered, he, he wrestles with this question, how can God be absolutely gracious and absolutely just at the same time? Or in other words, what is the relationship between mercy and holiness? Between sin and wrath and love and forgiveness? These are questions I hope that... Uh, we can find answers to while studying this book. And just before we get going, uh, we're going to be walking through Jonah 1 this morning. Jonah 1 is, I've divided it into three scenes. A disobedient prophet, a prideful prophet, and a delivered crew. And those aren't necessarily sermon points, but they're helpful markers for us to kind of hang our hat on this morning to uh, locate where we are. Before we get going, though, would, we, would you please pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much for this, this book of, uh, filled with human failure and your mercy and grace and love. We praise you and worship you that uh, through uh, the errors of some of the characters in this book, Lord, that you still work and you work mightily and you bring people close to you. 
We praise you that you are a God who never stops saving. You're in the business of saving people all the time. You are a good, righteous, holy God. Would you allow us to see more of who you are through this book? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get reading. Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So context here. Jonah is living in Israel, and they have been tormented and pestered and, uh, you know, beaten down by this nation called Assyria. One day they're completely conquered by Assyria. This is not quite yet the time Jonah's living. And Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria was a ruthless, wicked, warfaring nation. They would conquer neighboring countries and they would do awful things to the people they captured. They would torture and kill people for no reason really other than to just assert their dominance. In fact, they have been referred to as some as a nation of terrorists. If you read in the news about the things the Taliban have been doing uh, in Afghanistan over the past few weeks, Assyria probably did those same things too. This wasn't missed by God, and that's why he says their evil has come up before me. And these are the people that God tells Jonah to go preach to. Can you believe that? Can you imagine if, if you were supposed to, uh, if, if God told you one day, to go to this country that was known for murdering outsiders, people they saw as less than, and you were supposed to go into that group and preach to a whole bunch of terrorists all by yourself, to go into this country of people that could kill you, and as he's commanded here, call out against them? It's a suicide mission. It's really no wonder uh, Jonah does what he does next in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now Jonah does indeed arise like God tells him to, but instead of going to Nineveh, he heads in the complete opposite direction. If you look at a map of of the kind of ancient Near East at this time, Assyria is to the northeast of Israel, this way. Tarshish was across the Mediterranean. We don't know exactly where it is, but it's southwest. So it's, it's like as far away as Jonah knew how to get from Nineveh. And he f- arises to flee the presence of the Lord. This phrase, presence of the Lord, happens twice here. The writer's making it very clear that Jonah had absolutely no intentions of doing what God said. And in fact, he was trying to get away from God. Have you ever tried to run from God? Many of you are probably thinking no. Well, well, every Christian in this room have been given clear commands in Scripture to love one another, to share the gospel with people in their lives, to to live sinless, blameless, upright lives, or to be people marked by grace and repentance and passion for the Lord, and yet we all mess up. Sometimes, Uh, We make genuine mistakes in these areas. But other times we choose to just flat out disobey what we know we're commanded to do. We arise and we take off as far as possible from what we're supposed to do. 
husbands and fathers, maybe you've taken a passive back seat when it comes to leading your family and you opt to let your wife take on all of the work. Siblings, maybe you've forced out an I forgive you through gritted teeth, but choose to hold a grudge against your brothers and sisters. Employees, maybe you steal time from your boss by slacking off and cutting corners and doing whatever you can to do the least amount of work possible. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but for all of us, we choose to do things that we know are wrong because, you know, it's, we'd rather stay comfortable than stay obedient. Those are just a few examples of, of running from the commands that God has called you to, but here's the thing. Running away is where Jonah got it very wrong. The solution wasn't to run away. He should have run to his heavenly father and prayed and, tell, and told him what he was feeling. God, I'm, I'm scared. What if I die? We should be able to pray every emotion we have to God. When we feel like we're in over our heads, out of our comfort zones, when we're scared, running away isn't the answer. We should run directly to him. And so, if you have ever tried to run from God, tried to run from what you know you're supposed to do, this book is for you. And I'm going to tell you right now, Jonah is not exactly a role model, and running definitely is not the worst thing he ends up doing. But it's not really that surprising that he runs. He's scared. He's scared for his life. And, and this isn't why he signed up to be a prophet. He wanted to preach God's message to his own people, people he's comfortable around. Yeah, sure, he'll get some pushback and some hate from his fellow Israelites, but his life's not really in danger. And God's telling him to go somewhere that he had never considered going before, somewhere he probably would have avoided like the plague for the rest of his life if he'd had the choice. And he didn't want to preach to those people. He wanted to preach to people like himself. It's just human nature. We like to be around people we know, people that are like us, people that like the same music or think the same way that we do, people that believe like us and look like us and talk like us and eat the same foods that we do, people that are the same age as us. We spend lots of money to live in neighborhoods surrounded by people that make the same amount of money and, and kind of same have similar jobs as us. Apparently not... Too much about human nature has changed since Jonah's day, but something that's amazing about the church is that these similarities and these differences take a backseat to something that's far more powerful at uniting us than any commonality that we have, the gospel. Christian, no matter what color your skin is or what country you were born in, or what your first language is, or what your salary is, or what your age is, we are all brothers and sisters united by the fact that Jesus died and rose again for you and for me. We're family. We're on the same team. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So don't mishear this. It's not that these differences don't exist. 
We don't ignore them. They do exist, and the diversity of the church is an amazing, beautiful picture of what heaven will be like someday. It's just that these differences don't separate us any longer because we are united in Christ Jesus, who gave his life up for every person in this room. And that is why Jonah is, in part, a book that addresses race and nationalism, because he thought wrongly that by being part of God's chosen people that everyone else was less than him. Nobody else was worth the effort. They could burn for all he cared. He was a part of the elite. And he was willing to try to flee from the presence of God in order to maintain this nationalistic, religious, self-righteous pride. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your country. There's nothing wrong with being proud of who you are. There is a problem with being so proud of your country and your people and, dare I say, your church, that you believe everyone else is inferior to you. Now, God sees him running away because God is everywhere and sees everything. I like to imagine him chuckling in pity a little bit as he watches Jonah try to get on this ship. Read what happens next in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there's a mighty tempest that on, there's a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up this is seen to a prideful prophet this word for hurl is the same one used to describe someone throwing a spear if you ever watched the javelin throw at the olympics these abs, these athletes absolutely send it to get this javelin as far down the field as possible. They'll lean all the way back and run so that the javelin's almost dragging on the ground behind them. When they throw it, it's with all their might. Now imagine God, who is just a little bit stronger than an Olympic athlete, hurling this storm onto the sea where the ship with Jonah was with that same deadly determination. That's not a storm I'd want to be in. Moving on in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each called to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. What the captain says here is so interesting. Arise, call out to your God. One commentator says that Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare. These were the very words with which God had disturbed his pleasant life a few days before. Arise, call out. Imagine how Jonah would have felt waking up to hear these words, the exact same words echoing the words that God had said to him that he was trying to flee from. It must have been at this very moment that Jonah knew that his frantic escape plan was not going to go how he thought it would. I'd like to just point out here that uh, the captain uses a generic word for God, small g. We'll come back to that later. But what's interesting to mention now is what the captain tells Jonah to do. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This captain uh, is a pagan. He worshipped all sorts of different gods that 
uh, his culture had made up. And he doesn't know anything about the true God, but he does get one thing right. God is in the business of saving people. Perhaps he'll give a thought to us that we may not perish. God is in the business of saving people so much so that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And as we know from the New Testament and as we'll see in later chapters of this book, God is in the business of saving people who do not deserve it. That's exactly why he sends Jonah to preach to this evil terrorist city of Nineveh. And that's why this book is about grace. If you want to see some grace in action, continue to read with me. Verse 7. And they, the sailors, said to one another, Come, let's cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So the sailors cast lots, which is literally rolling the dice to see whose fault it was that they were in this storm. They know it's supernatural. And so their next step is to figure out what God is angry, at which guy on the boat. Maybe they can appease this God to avoid drowning. The lot falls to Jonah, and they ask him all about himself. And I really find his answer fascinating. Read verse 9 with me once again. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He says he fears God, which is amazing. I don't, I don't know about you, but from what I've seen so far, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of fear going on in his life. Jonah claiming that I fear the Lord kind of seems to me like a lie. You don't ignore and disobey someone you're afraid of, especially when you know that they know where you're getting, they can find you, that you can't actually run away from them. There's nothing in, in this snippet of four chapters, this snippet of Jonah's life that we have here that suggests that he really truly fears the Lord. From the evidence we have, this is an extension, I think, this answer is an extension of this religious, self-righteous, nationalistic pride that Jonah had in his heart. I fear God because I'm a Hebrew, because I'm a prophet, because I know all about him. I've spent my life studying the Bible. This is a lie that uh, we people that have grown up in church like to tell ourselves quite a lot. Well, look at Jonah's example. You can spend your entire life going to church, reading the Bible, praying, talking about God, getting all your memory verses down, and never let it affect your heart. You can know more about theology or the Bible stories than anyone else in the room. But knowing a lot about theology and Bible stories doesn't make you saved. We can spend all this time around the church without 
ever really considering whether or not we have let the gospel of Jesus Christ truly change us. It can become a source of pride or an identity marker without ever becoming our source of life. This sin is is called nominalism. We can easily be Christians by name, but never actually allow the gospel to change us. This nominalism, I, I think, is a reason why I believe there are a lot of people deconstructing their faith right now. If you haven't heard the term, deconstruction is essentially a movement of people who grew up in evangelical circles that are now questioning a lot of things they've been taught to believe as Christians. They're asking questions like, is the Bible outdated? Do we need to update it to allow, our, to allow us to love people better? Does the Bible really say that Jesus is God? What are some other sources of truth that we can find in the world? Is the Bible actually true? Is the church worth being a part of? Now, I think that all of these questions are valid questions that all of us need to wrestle with and come to answers to. One way or another. The the thing that makes me really sad is that there are a ton of Christians who have been around the church world for their entire lives and they never really knew why they believed what they did. They never asked the questions. And all of a sudden, when something major happens, like a pandemic sweeping across the globe and closing your church for months on end, they realize that their lives don't really feel much different. They don't miss the church at all. Or they begin to learn about these awful things that people who bore the name Christian did to indigenous people in our country through residential schools, and they start to wonder if the church is actually a toxic institution that causes more harm than good. Now, let me be clear. Deconstructing is, is not the point of this sermon, and Jonah isn't deconstructing anything here. Maybe you aren't either, but maybe you are in a place of doubt and questioning and instability. Or maybe you are on your way there because you haven't asked these questions. Why do I believe what I believe? And that's why it's so important that we don't trick ourselves into thinking that since we know a lot about the Bible or since we go to church every Sunday, that we have a close relationship with Jesus. We can live however we want to, spending our money on whatever we want to, looking at whatever we want on the internet. We become the kings and queens of our lives. And then when someone asks us, oh yeah, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. But as soon as it comes down to actually doing something difficult for God, the God that we claim to fear, we run the other way. And this isn't, me trying to condemn you. This is a call for all of us, for you and for me, to be honest with ourselves, to learn from the negative example that we have in Jonah. Do I actually fear God enough that I would be willing to fly to Afghanistan to preach the gospel to terrorists, to risk my life if he asked? Am I willing to make sacrifices for him? Or is church just something that I've always done that's a part of my weekly schedule where all my friends are? These are questions that we all have to come to terms with. Am I a Christian by name or am I truly saved? 
And it's much better to ask these hard questions now with a church family around us to support us, to walk through these, these tough questions and these tough times together alongside than to ask them in the middle of a crisis and to find ourselves deconstructing everything we've known all by ourselves. Please do not be afraid to ask hard questions. The church is not a place where you have to have all your ducks in a row before you show up. And also, please do not be afraid to come to an answer. Please come to an answer. If you're a Christian, you don't need to keep questioning and worrying if you're saved. Once you are saved, you are always saved. But find someone, if you're in a place of doubt or instability, find someone to walk through these kinds of questions with. This, this nominalism is part of my life. Some community groups are great places. Discipleship groups are a great place to do this. The church is a place where we need to be honest and vulnerable so that we can pray for each other and support each other and love one another. And Jonah let this religious pride and this nominalism kind of sneak up on him and look where he got. Don't be like Jonah. Let's read on uh, in verse 10, starting in verse 10. Then the men, the sailors, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you so that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Then he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous around them. So Jonah tells them, this is the solution. Throw me into the sea. And they, I think because they don't want to be guilty of murder, uh, do everything else before they try to resort to that last measure. I just find it so cool that these pagan sailors figure out that their lives and livelihood, because they threw all the cargo overboard earlier, are all in danger because of this one guy that they just met. And instead of tossing him into the sea like he deserves and like he asks them to, they first try to save his life by rowing their way back to shore. It seems like they value his life more than he does, even though it's all his fault that they're in this mess. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and Lay not on us the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. This is scene three, a delivered crew. These guys don't want to be guilty of murder. They even ask for forgiveness from the Lord, not lowercase g, God, but capital L, capital O-R-D, Yahweh God, for throwing this man into the sea. It's amazing. They begin to see that the Lord really is the God who made the heavens and the sea and the dry land. 
who's sovereign and in control over all creation. And as soon as they hurl Jonah into the sea, it stops. All of their man-made solutions to try and save themselves failed. They tried throwing their cargo overboard. The sea got, the storm got worse. They try rowing back to shore, and it gets even worse. Finally, when they do what God wanted them to do, to toss Jonah overboard, the storm, the storm immediately stops and they're saved. Again, I just find that human nature is on full display here. Our tendency is to try and figure things out on our own. We like to solve problems all by ourselves. Some of you here are really good problem solvers. But there's one problem that we can never solve on our own. The problem of sin. Think about it. The Israelites tried to solve this problem by following the law to a T. And they couldn't do it. We today try to solve our problems in all sorts of ways. Maybe, maybe politics is the answer. You know, monarchy is supposed to solve the problems of the old theocracies. And then democracy and capitalism is supposed to solve the problems of the monarchy. And while we still have problems, so maybe socialism will solve the problems of capitalism. If we look at history, there's no perfect political situation there's no perfect political solution for anything. Maybe we can, well, it's not politics. Maybe we can solve our problems with money. If I just work really hard and, and go to school and get a high-paying job, if I make enough money, then I can buy a lit, nice house and drive a nice car and escape the problems of the rest of the world. I think that most rich and famous people will tell you that money is not the answer either. Jim Carrey, beloved Canadian comedian, is worth 180 million U.S. dollars. And he has this famous quote, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Okay, so money doesn't solve our problems either. The point is that man-made solutions to spiritual problems do not work. These sailors in Jonah 1 are proof of that. The only problem the only solution to the problem of sin and pain and suffering and death in the world is Jesus Christ who gave up his life because of your sin so that your soul can be saved and that you can live forever in paradise with the God who made everything you know. In this paradise called the new heaven and the new earth, John writes this about in Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. This is the end result of the gospel. It's the solution to every problem you will ever face now or for the rest of your earthly life. Not because you won't ever live through extreme pain, but because one day you will be in the presence of God where tears and death and mourning and crying and pain 
will be gone forever and you will live in absolute paradise with the God who made it possible. You can't make that happen. Political systems will not make that happen. Money will not make that happen. But Jesus absolutely can. And I think the sailors in this next verse see a glimpse of this from their pre-Jesus perspective. Read, Read verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They begin to fear Yahweh, the one true God, because they have seen his power and his might. They've experienced his grace as he saved them from the storm. And now, I don't know if they stopped worshiping all the other gods they tried praying to before, if they just added Yahweh to their list, but I would love to meet one of these guys in heaven someday and ask them what it was like to live through this. Finally, in The last verse of this chapter, the verse that makes Jonah such a well-known story, is verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We love talking about the fish that swallows Jonah. Because it's so crazy and fascinating to think about this man being swallowed by a gigantic fish and hanging out in there for three or four days for three days and then being barfed back up onto shore talk about a way to be humbled yet the fish should not be the main focus while we read through this book and in this verse we have another allusion to Jesus Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and Jesus was in the belly of death for three nights Jesus was in the belly of death and on the third day he rose again. This is just another thing that reminds us that the main character of this book is not Jonah, but God. All of scripture points to Jesus. One more quote, Tim Keller writes this. Jonah could not see that deep within the terror of the storm, God's mercy was at work, drawing him back to change his heart. It's not surprising that Jonah missed this initially. He didn't know how God would come into the world to save us. We, however, living on this side of the cross, know that God can save through weakness, suffering, and apparent defeat. Those who watched Jesus dying saw nothing but loss and tragedy. Yet at the heart of that darkness was the divine mercy. Yet yet at the heart of that darkness the divine mercy was powerfully at work, bringing about pardon and forgiveness for us. God's salvation came into the world through suffering so that his saving grace and power can work in our lives more and more as we go through difficulty and sorrow. There is mercy deep inside our storms. So here's the big idea of Jonah chapter 1. Difficulty often highlights our disobedience to bring us closer to God. This is the relationship between mercy and wrath, between forgiveness and judgment. Sometimes, oftentimes, not all the time, we are experiencing something extremely difficult because God is trying to teach us something, to reveal a sin in our lives or expose 
an area that we need to grow in. And this is mercy deep inside the storms of life. I try to say this a lot, but a life spent serving God, even though it is hard, is absolutely worth it. There's nothing more rewarding, more satisfying, more fulfilling. And Jim Carrey knows what the answer is not, but we know what the answer is. It's Jesus. And so as a church, let's live obedient to the commands we have been given in Scripture. We're not better than anyone else. We're not more qualified than anybody. We are a bunch of nobodies trying to tell everybody about the somebody who saved our souls. Would you please pray with me? Dear God, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who does not give up on us, who consistently pursues us despite uh, our many sins and flaws and disobedience. Thank you that you love us unconditionally, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this uh, first chapter of Jonah where we have seen you work in amazing ways, how you, despite uh, no efforts of Jonah, saved this group of sailors. Lord, we pray that we would be people that in the midst of difficulty and tragedy and loss would be uh, people who run to you and not away. That we would be a church who tries our best to draw near to you because you are our only hope. In Jesus' mighty, powerful, saving name we pray, amen.